And uh, this is not going to be so much a sermon as it's going to be just uh, some good reminders and a very simple and also uh, a fairly short sermon as well. You know, we live in a war-ravaged globe. Um, <clears throat> the war has been ongoing for at least the last 6,000 years, hasn't it? Uh, there are many ways to characterize the, the two sides in the war. Um, as early as, as Genesis chapter number 3, we see it was a, a war between two families. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And so there, there are two families involved in this war, and it's a much bigger war than the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, the Bible records the first salvo being fired in the very next chapter, in chapter number 4, when Cain, the offspring of the serpent, killed his brother Abel. You, you know that story, right? And he, he fled. It's interesting. There's, I love the book of Genesis and the pictures, and one of them is that every time you go east, you're fleeing from the presence of God in the book of Genesis. And it could be true in the United States, too, but we won't go there. So, um, <clears throat> As the story moves along, we see the battle between the two families reach a high point of several high points in, in Exodus chapter number one. And that is Pharaoh. He's not only another offspring of the serpent, but he's also a picture of the devil himself. Uh, wars against the children of Israel, who God calls his firstborn. And so you have two different offspring at war in, in Exodus, right? From time to time, the seed of the serpent appears as if it is going to overcome the seed of the woman. Think about the different people, the Philistines in 1 Samuel, the Assyrians uh, with, against the northern kingdom, and later on the Babylonians against Judah. And they all appear temporarily to have the upper hand. The, the, the war reaches its climax, its, its peak, during the ministry of Jesus. And if you remember the, the, demonic, <coughs> the demonic possession was, was um, just incredible during the time of Jesus. It's, it's like Satan threw everything he could at, at Jesus Christ. And um, a verse that we will read next week Luke chapter 3, verse number 7, tells us that the leaders of Israel were the offspring of the serpent. John the Baptist said, uh, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That word brood is, is the descendants of vipers. And so he was calling the religious leaders the, the spawn, spawn of Satan, if you want to use that type of a term. They were doing Satan's bidding. And those children of the serpent crucified Jesus Christ. And it appeared that the serpent won, except that he didn't, right? For three days later, Jesus crushed the serpent's head by rising from the grave. So the war is won, 
right? But even though the war's won, there are skirmishes going on year after year, decade after decade, century after century. We find in Revelation 12 that we're introduced to the dragon. You're familiar with the dragon in Revelation 12? And he's, he's very powerful. The Bible gives a fierce picture of the dragon who is Satan. Very powerful. And yet, he's ultimately a defeated foe, right? <clears throat> the Bible describes the warring parties in other, way, in other ways. Um, for example, one of the ways that the Bible describes the two, si <coughs> the two sides, I'm sorry, <coughs> is um, children of darkness and children of light. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness. I, I like what it says. It doesn't say you were in darkness. It says at one time, he's talking to Christians here, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord, walk as children in light. And the idea of, of Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 8, is that you reflect whoever your father is. And before salvation, you're of the devil. And so it's not that you are in darkness. You're reflecting him. You are darkness. But when you get saved, it's not that you are in the light because you are. You are the light. Isn't that wonderful? Wonderful picture there. All of us have been born into the family of darkness. That's a hard one for us to comprehend, isn't it? If you've been saved a long time, especially. The unsaved are characterized by darkness. This darkness is both spiritual and it's, it's moral. Uh, spiritual darkness because people in darkness have no ability to comprehend the truth. None whatsoever. And so it's a, it's a spiritual darkness that allows them to not, or prevents them, I'm sorry, from seeing spiritual truth. And it's moral darkness because their deeds are evil. John 3.19, and this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and listen to this. People love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works, their deeds were evil. And so people love the darkness, and they love the works of darkness. <coughs> they, are, they are in darkness as a result, they don't know their eternal destinies. John 12, verse number 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Then he says this, The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. That's talking about eternal destinies there. And so you have a warring party that doesn't know that he's on the path to destruction. Now the world would tell us, well, then, you know, they totally deserve that. And so let's help them get there, right? That would be a worldly philosophy, except that's not what Jesus said. Jesus taught us to invade the darkness and tell them, Right? Give them the light. Give them the truth. 
And so we invade the darkness. And, and Providence Bible Church is a lighthouse in a dark world, just like all the churches are. Have you ever seen <clears throat> those maps of continents at night? And you see, you see how, where all the lights are. And all those lights are caused by individual little lights. And, and for example, one of the, the ones that people like to point out is North Korea. There literally are no lights in North Korea at night, except for one little part. Uh, there might be a little bit of light. But that, that, is, that is the church. And some countries have more light, and some countries have less light. But we are light in the darkness. Now, I realize that what I'm giving you is, is Anthropology 101. It's the Doctrine of Anthropology 101. But it's, it's good for us to remember that we are at war. And everyone who is not a child of God is a child of the devil. And everyone who is not in Christ is in the realm of darkness and death, whether they realize it or not. And they are at war with us as well. And they may not even think of themselves that way. But anybody, no matter how moral they are, no matter how much common grace is displayed in their life, they are on the side that's at war with us. It looks differently but with different people, but they are at war. <clears throat> and we were once children of the devil and in the kingdom of darkness. Uh, turn to Colossians 1.13. We're going to get to some scripture uh, and um, have you turn to some passages. So I'll have you turn to Colossians 1.13. This is Paul's opening and, uh, of Colossians. And he says, he, talking about Jesus Christ, has delivered us from where? The domain, the dominion of darkness and transferred us to a totally different kingdom. Uh, like Nar Narnia, right? It's just a complete transference to a different kingdom, so to a wonderful kingdom from the darkness and, and the kingdom of death. And that's, that's the other way that the Bible characterizes the two kingdoms, isn't it? You have the kingdom of death and you have the kingdom of life. What's interesting in uh, the, the Apostle John, particularly in 1 John, he uses interchangeably uh, darkness and light and death and life. And you'll see the light is the life. And they're, they're used interchangeably, and there's some Old Testament roots to that. But, um, but so we have, we have three characteristics. We have families. We have darkness and light. <coughs> and we have death and life. Now, what's interesting, when we start talking about the United States of America, is that for most of our nation's history, the fact of spiritual warfare has been largely obscured, hasn't it? I mean, we're not China. We're not Sudan. Um, we're not Iran or any of those kind of countries where it's very obvious. In, in America, it's been obscured largely because of the cultural and Christian roots of our nation's history. Now, it is true that many of our, the founders of our nation had Protestant backgrounds, <clears throat> and some of them were Christians, 
it's, it's hard to know what percentage of the, the founders of the, the country were, um, were Christians, but uh, a, a good percent, <coughs> percentage of them were believers. As a result of this, we have this wonderful privilege of having grown up in a country with Christian values that define the culture. Uh, with that heritage, though, uh, came some real problems. And, and one of them is that there was a, a popular movement for a while to view America as almost like the new Israel. Like, we're going we're gonna to establish this new kingdom type idea. In the, um, in the 19th century, a, a term was coined, manifest destiny. And that, that term... Uh, you, you can define it different ways. But one of the one of the dominant characteristics is that we're a special nation endowed by God, and so we're going to con- conquer this continent. We're going to make this nation a city on or a city on a hill, and um, a lot of hubris in that, to be honest with you, and a lot of um, not accounting for the sinfulness of men, and so they call us a Christian nation, and. A byproduct of that was that there was great confusion between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. And they would try to to meld the whole thing into one. You know, the United States is synonymous with God's kingdom type thing. And that, that, that that was a great temptation. I remember, now, I don't view myself as that old. The teenagers, I know you think I'm an old man, and that's fine. But um, the little public elementary school that I went to when I was real young, uh, they, they had the pledges, and we would gather around the flagpole outside in the morning, and we would still sing, God bless America, and then we would pray. And I don't even consider myself that old. And we, we did that at a public elementary school. And... Those, those days are long gone, but um, that, that's, that's the kind of growing up. If you're over 50, that's probably the kind of growing up you did, most likely. Um, I will leave the political jokes out <coughs> of here. Now, where am I going with all this? I'm going somewhere with this, but, um, but I want to talk about one more thing before we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about, and that is... Uh, there's a there's a guy named Aaron Wren <clears throat> who wrote about the change in standing of Christianity within American secular culture. The article was entitled "The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism." Some of you may have heard of that that uh, article, but he he recounts three stages. There's no hard and fast break between the stages of secular culture and its relation to Christianity but just some general characteristics. And so he laid out the, the first one he called positive world. Positive world was roughly pre-1994. And what he said in the article is that society at large uh, retained mainly a positive view of Christianity. Uh, it was known to be good. Um, uh, a church-going man remains part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly, being a Christian is, is a status enhancer. How many politicians in the 80s 
wanted to be identified as Christians, right? Um, Christian moral norms were the basic moral norms of society. Violating them could have um, negative consequences. If you're over, like I said, if you're over 50, that's probably the the America of your childhood, right? This um, positive world. If you remember Christianity, there were two dominant strains of movement when it came to engaging the culture. The first one would be the culture warriors. These are the ones who wanted to uh, push evil to the, you know, to the fringes of society and, and reform society. This would be like the Jerry Falwell types and, and those kind of people. But you had another, because it was positive world, there was another stream of Christianity in the way that they engaged culture, and that was the, the seeker movement. Uh, Bill Hybels with Willow Creek Church and, and um, his, his group, they, they remember, if, if you know anything about the seeker movement, Bill Hybels took a survey in Chicago of people who were not Christians and said, if you were to come to church, what would you like to see in church? And then he tailored uh, Willow Creek around that church experience. And so those are, those are a couple of the, the, the streams of, of pre-94 positive world Christianity and the way it engaged the culture. The second stage he called neutral world. That's roughly 1994 to 2014. And here, um, society takes a neutral stance towards Christianity. Christianity is no longer a has a privileged status, but it's not really disfavored either. People are kind of ambivalent towards it. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither a, a positive nor negative impact on your social status. Christianity is a valid option in our society that became increasingly pluralistic in the public square. Christian moral norms re retain some residual effect, right? Uh, one of the ways that Christians were related to the culture would be to be winsome, you know, winsome cultural uh, engagement. Probably the, the, the icon for this would be somebody like Timothy Keller. You know, he started the Presbyterian Church in, in Manhattan, which was very anti-Christian. And, and uh, when, when his Redeemer Presbyterian really got going, the all, secular people viewed him very well. Uh, he, he didn't take hard stances on some of the, the moral issues uh, as, um, as his predecessors had because he wanted to be winsome. Now, oddly enough, I think it was 2016 or 17, he was supposed to be a, um, receive an award from Princeton University, which is his alma mater. And because he believed in biblical marriage values, uh, he was now viewed as somebody who was not part of the Princeton values at all. The, the, the students protested him, and he didn't get his award. And so that was, that was neutral world. But we've now <coughs> transitioned into negative world. Society now has a negative view of Christianity, right? Being known as a Christian <coughs> is a social negative, particularly right now with the elites in society, right? Christian morality is expressly repudiated. It's seen as a threat to the public good. If you're here today and you believe that marriage is defined as between one man and one woman, you are a threat to society. 
If, if you believe that abortion is wrong and it's a moral evil, you are a threat to society. If you believe that there are two genders, um, you are a threat to society. Now, notice the term I'm using. You're a threat. It's, it's, not, it's not anything less than that. You are a genuine threat. And so um, you are a threat to the new moral order. And subscribing to Christian moral views or violating secular moral order brings negative consequences. Some of you have probably already experienced that in one way or another. And so we live in negative world. Now, why do, why do I take this long to get to where we are right now? The reason I did that is that <clears throat> what I was thinking about this week is that there's a possibility in, in the next few weeks that we're going to see Roe versus Wade overturned, right? And that, that's a good thing, isn't it? It is a good thing. Now, <clears throat> this is not a ban on abortion to overturn Roe versus Wade. Rather, what it does, it, it puts the um, abortion policy, public policy, in the hands of the local state governments. And so there are a number of states that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, immediately they have state laws that make it to where abortion is practically illegal in their, in their states. It's on the books and it's teed up, uh, to use a golf analogy, and they're, they're ready to go, right? Other states, well, are increasingly defining themselves to have more liberal policies. But you need to be prepared. And this is where I'm going with this. You need to be prepared because if Roe versus Wade is overturned, you are going to receive the blame. That's important for us to understand that angry secularists and abortion advocates will be spitting their venom at Christians because this is our fault. Isn't it? <coughs> we need to be ready to give an answer. <coughs> abortion is the holy sacrament of the left. And when I say left, I'm not, I'm not even talking political right now. It's, it's the holy sacrament of people on the left. There's no greater right than the right of abortion. You, you probably already have witnessed borderline derangement of some people at the prospect of Roe being overturned. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it, haven't you? And if and when it is overturned, it's going to, go from borderline derangement to almost a complete unhinging with some. And I'm not, I'm not making light. I'm being dead serious when I say this, okay? Have you ever asked yourself, why? Why do they get so distraught over the possibility that there are some states that may almost ban abortion? Why is there so much? Uh, emotion 
and vitriol and hate at that. Well, I want to give you, these are not, turn to uh, John chapter number 8. I'm going to give you two spiritual reasons. And these are, this is not rocket science. Like I said, this is not deep. Um, uh, I'm just glad I put some coherent thoughts together to get up here today. The first reason that you must understand is that people who do not know Christ are other father, the devil, and he is a murderer. John chapter number 8 and verse number 44, Jesus is speaking and he says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. <coughs> and we have heard all of that in the public discourse, haven't we? You, you think about what some of the things have been said. Uh, one, of the, one of the threats they want to make is, well, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, people are going to die as if babies haven't been dying for decades, right? And so there's a lie. They're, they're the father. Satan is a liar and the father of lies, and he's a murderer. Uh, from Genesis chapter number 4, you see that the children of Satan are murderers because he's a murderer. He's a killer. And, and so this is a spiritual dimension. Satan wants to murder God's imagers and not even give them a chance to survive. And so they, the, the, the people who are so unhinged about this, they have their father's spiritual DNA. And I know this, is, this sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds harsh for me to stand up here and say this, but this is spiritual truth. These words are uttered by Jesus. Not by, not by anybody else. These are, these are Jesus' words. And so we can think uh, clearly about this uh, then. Secondly, there's another reason why they get so upset. And that is <clears throat> abortion is not about choice. Abortion is about sex. Turn to Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter number 4. <clears throat> I want to reread a passage that I quoted earlier in the sermon, and I want to add a verse to it. In, um, in Ephesians chapter number 4, and verse number 17, it says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. <clears throat> By the way, the word Gentile there is... Another word for people who do not know Christ. They are darkened in their understanding. There's that word darkness again. Alienated from the life of God. So there's that death aspect. Because of the ignorance that is in them. And notice why they are ignorant. They're ignorant because their hearts are hard. They don't want to know. You ever met somebody who you... You can't convince them of the truth, even though it's right in front of them, just because they really don't want to know the truth. This is what we're talking about here. But notice the next verse, verse number 19. They have become callous 
and have given themselves up to sensuality. Why? They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In other words, sex. They cannot get enough of it. They can't get enough of it. They want all that they can get all the time. And so they're greedy for it. it it's a desire. They, they, no, no amount of sex is enough sex. And so people demand to have sex. And a conceived child may be an unfortunate consequence to that sex. And so the issue is not to stop the sex. The issue is to kill the child. That's the answer. What are they, what are they trying to say? It's not that they hate babies. It's not even that they hate fetuses. And it's not that they love murder. It's that they want their sex to that degree. They want it to the degree that they're willing to murder the most defenseless and innocent in our society. They're, they're willing to murder babies in their mother's womb. They want sex that badly. And with over 61 million abortions and counting, the mother's womb is a dangerous place for any child, isn't it? Now they will come after evangelicals after Roe versus Wade because we're getting in the way of what they think makes them happy. Now the mindset of somebody who is unsaved, remember, is all about the here and now. And that's it. And so you live your life for whatever makes you happy. And what makes you happy if you don't know Christ is what you can see and what you can feel and what you can hear and what makes you feel good. And one of those is sex. And so therefore, anyone that gets in the way of what I want, no matter what kind of sex it is, they must be destroyed. And, we, and to be honest with you, we can't even fathom that, can we? Because we're living for a kingdom that we cannot see with our physical eyes. We're living for the future, delayed gratification. And, and so we don't even begin to understand that. Now, one pastor wrote with um, this upcoming decision, and he said the following, and this is what got me thinking about this whole thing. He said, the chances are pretty good that evangelicals will find themselves in situations where they will be called upon to give an explanation for their egregious support of this eradication of women's rights. That's the way they're framing it, right? So even if you have not been to a, you've not, so even if you have not been a pro-life activist, I would encourage you to review all the arguments, review the biblical arguments and the political arguments and the medical arguments behind the overturning of Roe versus Wade, because you are going to be called to give an answer. And so <clears throat> I believe that's a sound advice, don't you? And we're hoping, uh, actually, I, I, I need to talk to the elders about this, but I would like for us to, to have some classes on the apologetic behind this, because I, I think it's going to get rough for some people. Some of you may have already experienced that. But I just want to close by giving you Three basic biblical arguments against abortion in for life. And these are, these are um, nothing 
profound, but they're absolutely biblical and they're a good uh, working point. Number one, abortion is an assault on the work of God. We are against it because it's an assault on the work of God. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. That is a, that is a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. You formed my inward parts. Think about our inward parts. God formed them all, right? He, um, every person is a work of God. Every baby in the womb <clears throat> is a work of God. Every life is a personal creation of God. I'm looking out and I see men with full heads of hair and men who wish they had full heads of hair, right? And I see people who are thin and some people who are not so thin. I see tall people and I see short people. And I see people with glasses and people who are faking it because they have contacts and then other people like us who don't need glasses so <clears throat> i had to get that in there so but the the bottom line is and i see people who um have different abilities some of you love finances and you love all the details and you're the cpas and other people you're the artistic kind and details i just want to have the big picture right and 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 all of us, and I see musicians, and those of us who wish we were musicians, right? Um, and the word knitted is, is a word. You knitted me in my mother's womb. It's, it's an act of intimacy. God's creation of you in your mother's womb was an act of intimacy. No wonderful? Sometimes Christians will say, will we'll feel... Uh, circumstances around us like hello God you know I'm down here can you hear me Uh, my life is is tough or whatever you want to whatever you feel but God knows you he knows you better than you know yourself because he knitted you in your mother's womb And, and I will say this in the New Testament by the way the Bible says that God knits his church together in the same way he knits the church together but, but it's an intimate act of God's creation. God intricately wove every part of you together with the result. Are you ready? That when you were born, he was pleased. He said, that's my baby. I formed that baby. Isn't that awesome to think? And so every person is a work of God therefore (coughs) abortion is a direct assault on the work of God secondly every person (coughs) is created in God's image every person is created in God's image Genesis 1 26 everybody knows this verse then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea the birds and the livestock, and over every creeping thing. That's what it means to have the image of God, is that we have dominion, good dominion. We are, we are kings. We are co-regents. We, God is not here in, uh, now, um, God 
is in his throne in heaven. Of course, we know he's everywhere. Okay, we understand that. But his throne is not here. And so he placed us here as co-regents to rule the world on his behalf. That's why so many of Jesus' parables talks about a king went away for a long time. And he left his stewards. You and I are those stewards, right? And so we're, we're imagers. And so we're the only creatures endowed with the communicable attributes of God. Your puppy, as cute as he is, does not have the communicable attributes of God. None of them. Okay? We are the highest of God's creation. The Bible says that he crowned us with glory, the glory of his communicable traits. And so therefore, we are against abortion because every person is created in God's image. And let me give you one last one. This is very basic. We are against abortion because God commanded us not to murder Exodus 20.13 says, you shall not murder. Now, what's interesting about that word, the word translated murder is the Hebrew word ratzah. Ratzah. And it's used 43 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it always means the violent killing of a person that's actually a murder or is accused as murder. It's, it's never in war. It's, it's never the, the same as a killing that's in war. I had a Hebrew professor who talked about this word, and he said, yeah, he said, he said in, in the Old Testament, he said there's, this, there's a word for um, kill and murder, and it's the idea that two people are working, and they're trying to cut down a tree, and the head of an axe flies off and hits a guy in the head, and that's one kind. But he said, if you take a rock and you bash somebody on the head, that's this murder. It's a very violent murder. And abortion is violent, isn't it? The process is inhumane. It's painful. It's cruel. It's sickening. You can go online and read testimonies of abortion providers who have turned into pro-life advocates. And they talk about seeing the beating heart of a 14-week-old baby as they yank it out of its mother's womb. They, looking into the face of a baby not much older than that. Or the reaction of the babies being torn limb for limb in their mother's womb. It's a terrible, awful, awful thing. I would say that qualifies as the violent killing, wouldn't you? Exodus 20:13. And so we are against abortion for these reasons and, and many more. But giving a defense is not the only responsibility we have. Remember how I talked about there being two families and they're warring against each other? Well, the responsibility that we have is not to go to war in the way that we would think about going to war. We go to war by going out and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go to war by when the angry people come at us, we give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We kill them with love. We kill them with kindness. We show how that God 
is merciful to the evil and the good. The Old Testament says that he causes the rain and the sun to shine on the evil and the good, right? And so Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And so that's what we do. We, we go to war not with, armed with weapons of warfare, but rather with the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so in the faces of anger and the voices that are yelling at evangelicals represent souls that need Jesus Christ. And you don't know which one of these people are going to end up turning to Jesus Christ. Think about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. It says that there was a man named Saul who was physically dragging Christians out of their houses, throwing them in the jail, approving of the murder of Christians. And of course, we know that he became who? The Apostle Paul and wrote almost half of the New Testament. And so we, we wore that way. But I want to speak a little bit more directly to some of you because some of you have had abortions. And so a sermon like this is very hard for you to hear. I know that. And I'm, I'm very aware of that. And Satan, what he likes to do is to use that historical fact of your life against your conscience. He does. And so, for you, believer, who have abortion in your past, remember this, that God has saved you. He washed you from that sin. And that sin is under the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And you can boldly access the throne of God with confidence because Jesus is your Christ. He's your Savior. And you can stand before God with that in your past and you can boldly say, the reason I stand here, God, is because Jesus Christ washed me with his blood. And I'm now a child of God. And God views you not as somebody who had an abortion in your past, but rather God views you as somebody the same way that he would view Jesus Christ. The same love, the same affection, the same good will that he has towards his only son, Jesus Christ, he has towards you. Isn't that wonderful to know? And so in the face of anger, we give a defense. We give a defense biblically and medically and politically, but we also share the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Isn't it wonderful? And let us pray that Roe versus Wade is overturned. Lord, such a, a simple message, uh, but uh, this is all I had today, Lord. And it's a good reminder to us of, of where we are in Jesus Christ. It's a good reminder of us to remember that there is, there is a Satan out there who is seeking to destroy God's image of himself seeking to destroy the church, seeking to 
um, just destroy <laughs> as many lives as he possibly can. We thank you, Lord, that it seems that uh, our nation is trending towards the repeal of Roe versus Wade. And I, I ask that we will be ready to give an answer, that we will do this with joy and love, knowing that um, no amount of winsomeness is going to change people's hearts, only the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ and that we can stand before you no matter what sins are in our past. And it may not just be an abortion. It may be sexual immorality and, and drunkenness and, and um, cheating and lying and, and, and um, uh, greed of all sorts, knowing that these have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and that we're saints of God and you will treat us saints of God. May we rejoice in that fact. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.